0: Now, most of us today know that we have a ticket to heaven. We know that it has been paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ, but many of us do not know the privileges that are attached to that ticket. And so not only are we to be saved by grace, we are commanded to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ.
1: Hello, welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogey. Dr. Brogi is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Romans, we're nearing the end of chapter 8. This passage is actually quite beautiful because it addresses the length and breadth and depth of God's love for those who have accepted Him as their Lord and Savior. As we begin part one of a study entitled, More Than Conquerors, Pastor Brogy tackles the subject of the security of the believer.
0: Take the word of God, would you, this morning and turn to the book of Romans chapter 8. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been working our way through the book of Romans for the last year and a half. And today we're in the eighth chapter, which is one of the best known and best loved chapters in the Bible. Let me just refresh your memory with the context. The book of Romans has three principal parts. The first part is doctrinal, where god's righteousness is revealed the second part is national where god's righteousness is vindicated and then the third part is uh, practical in which we see god's righteousness applied And each section as we will see divides into three sections so we're in the first section of the book which is doctrinal and there are three great doctrines that are highlighted first the doctrine of condemnation And Paul in the first few chapters in the first part of chapter 3 explains why each and every one of us deserve the just condemnation of God and His eternal wrath. Then beginning in the middle of chapter 3 all the way through chapter 5, he deals with the doctrine of justification. How is it that God can maintain His righteousness and at the same time declare us righteous? And so he unfolds for us the cross of Christ and how God can declare us holy in His sight. The third section deals with the doctrine of sanctification. Justification speaks of our position of righteousness. Sanctification speaks of our practice, becoming in our experience what God has declared us to be. So we're in the third section, chapter 6 through 8, of the first section of the book of Romans. Now let me zoom in on the immediate context. When you come to the last 12 verses of Romans 8, it's like climbing the Everest of the New Testament and we're going to begin to climb the final peak today and we'll finish God willing next week. But here Paul sweeps over our salvation all the way from eternity past into eternity future. And he will conclude affirming that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so Romans 8:28 a very much memorized verse though very often though applied, not applied in its context. It is indeed has many applications when we see God working in our life and His providence, but we miss the overall way in which God is working all things together for good, which He explains in verses 29 and 30. The good God has in view is to make us like Christ such that all that He is called, He will indeed glorify. That brings us to our text today. Let's begin reading in verse 31. Follow along in your Bibles. Romans eight thirty one. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. How would you respond if you were asked right now, is it possible to lose your salvation? I think most of you would say, absolutely not. Praise God, when God saved me, he saved me forever. I can never be lost, I am eternally secure. And yet many Christians do not know that they are eternally secure. There are believers who will say, I have assurance of my salvation. I know right now on the basis of the finished work of Christ that heaven is my home if I were to die today. But that does not mean that I could not commit some heinous sin or even turn my back on Christ altogether and lose salvation. And so there are Christians in this world who teach assurance of salvation, but not the eternal security of the believer. And so I meet these Christians who walk around with their spiritual shoulders down, they're drooping, they're wondering, they're worrying, and they're, they're really questioning, will I definitely go to heaven? Listen, God's word wants us to be grateful Christians, not doubtful Christians. God's word wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that once we are assured of salvation, genuinely secured, that we are secure for all time in eternity. Now, when you speak to people about Christianity and going to heaven, you will typically find four categories of people. First, there are those who will say it is impossible to know that you're going to heaven. And they will argue that such knowledge is arrogance. One of the world's largest denominations calls that the sin of presumption. They say it is impossible to say you know that you are saved. They say to say such a thing is the sin of pride, when the New Testament would teach just the opposite. It's absolute humility, because if you understand the basis by which God saves you, it is not acquired or earned through good things. It is humbly received based on the finished work of Christ. And so John will write in his letter, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. And the word means absolute assurance, that kind of knowledge. It's possible to be saved and to know it. Now that is not to say that after a person comes to a genuine assurance of salvation and begins to grow, that the devil could not at a later point come back and attack that assurance. That's why Paul in Ephesians 6 calls us to put on the whole armor of God, and included in that armor is the helmet, which he defines in 1 Thessalonians 5, the helmet of our salvation as being the guaranteed, assured, and certain hope that we will go to heaven. So there are those who have no assurance because their salvation is faulty, and then there are those who have a faulty assurance. I was in. Bluffton and our Bluffton church is worshiping with us this morning. We're so grateful for all our Hilton Head families and Bluffton families. But on Tuesday night, someone said they were 100% sure and they discovered before the night was over that they were 100% wrong. There are many people who have a faulty assurance. Now when John writes, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, the careful reader of scripture would immediately ask, what things? You see, some people read that verse, these things I've written to you, believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life, to say that John is addressing people who may be questioning whether or not you can have assurance, and they've not read the epistle carefully. What he's dealing with are false teachers who had come into church with their pre-Gnostic theology. The seeds of Gnosticism were planted in the first century when John was alive. It comes into full blossom in the second century. But basically, the essence of Gnosticism said, well, you can know the Lord and you can live however you want. You can be saved and live like the devil. And so John counters in at least five different ways the false teachings that they have to address those who are in the church who have a false assurance but also to remind those who have a true assurance that if these things are true of you because these are the definite fruits and marks of conversion then you can certainly know that you are included in the genuine number that you have eternal life the lord jesus of course deals with the same problem in the sermon on the mount in matthew 7 he said many will say to me on that day lord lord did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles please underscore in your thinking the word many and again as i've reminded you before he's not talking about the various isms of the world he's talking about those who profess to be christians those who profess to be born again And out of those who make that profession, Jesus said the reality is that they are on the broad road that leads to destruction. To drive home the seriousness of the lesson, he doesn't go after some ho-hum testimony. He goes after one of the most spectacular testimonies someone could have. He says here in this verse, these are people who preached in his name, who cast out demons in his name, who performed miracles in his name. I mean, what better profession of faith could you have than that? People today would say, well, that's the mark of a spirit filled, spirit anointed ministry. And yet, Jesus makes it perfectly clear that in light, in spite of their false profession referring to him as Lord, in spite of their false preaching by prophesying in his name, in spite of their false powers by performing miracles in his name, and by the way, there's no reason at all to doubt their claim to do these because Jesus taught in the same letter in Matthew 24 that false Christ and false prophets will come, and in his name do all kinds of great signs and wonders. But these are people who have profession without reality. They have talk without truth, and that kind of talk will not cut it. The final judgment of God And so they make a very solemn profession to Him, but he in return will make a very solemn profession to them. He will say in that same chapter, and I will declare to them, "I never knew you. Not I once knew you, but I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They use His name freely, but to, the, to him, their name is unknown. They've never met the Savior. And so in spite of the fact that they claim to be Christians, the reality is is that their name was never written in the Lamb's book of life. Their profession is with their lips but not with their life. Now beyond those who have no assurance because they have a faulty view of how people are saved, beyond those who have a false assurance because they never really truly have been saved, There are also those people who have assurance of salvation, a genuine assurance, but they do not believe they are eternally secure. They doubt as to whether or not they can stay saved. When I go to Eastern Europe and meet with pastors there, that's the predominant view in Eastern Europe. And it's been exciting to see hundreds of them change their mind as they've had a chance to think their way through scripture. You say, well, is doubt good? No, doubt is to your spirit what pain is to your body. Pain is a warning that something is wrong. And when you doubt the doctrine of eternal security, which we will see, as we've already seen, is plainly taught in the Word of God, when you doubt that, it will bring spiritual harm to your life. And so Paul is going to help us to see further just how secure we are in Jesus Christ. You can see the title of this morning's message is More Than Conquerors. More Than Conquerors. There's a note-taking outline if you're new. You might want to jot down some thoughts this morning for further reflection. Paul makes five declarations that you might know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are indeed eternally secure in Jesus Christ. Declaration number one. There is no effective opposition against the child of God. No effective opposition. Notice the first declaration. He opens with a question What shall we say to these things? And of course, uh, you do not want to read that question apart from the immediate context. In verse 28, he said, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. It is not a wholesale promise. That the people of this world often claim it is a limited promise given to only those who love God to those who are born again to those who are in the King James is most precise here to those who are the called according to his purpose I noted for you a few weeks ago this is not a verb it's actually a noun and he's speaking about a specific group of people who are determined here as the called And of course, for those who love God, to those who are part of this group called the called, God is working all things together for good. Well, what good does God have in view? Well, He's unfolded that in verses 29 and 30 where He shows how God is sovereignly working. And last time we studied five links in God's chain of salvation. Notice, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, don't miss the flow of thought because it is a beautiful picture of the sovereignty of God Almighty. God has foreknowledge. And we looked at six undisputable examples in the New Testament where the same word, progonosco, means advanced knowledge, pre knowledge. Pro, We get our prefix uh, before. Uh, Gnosko is the word for know in the Bible, before knowledge. God in his before knowledge acted. Paul uses the same word in Acts 26 and verse 5 when he's giving his testimony in defense of his Christianity before Festus. Actually, King Agrippa. And, and there before Agrippa, all these Jewish people around him, He said, listen, they knew beforehand, prognosco, same word used here, of my former manner of life. They knew what I was like before I met the living God. And so God in eternity past looks down the corridors of time. It's not what he knew, but what whom he foreknew. Because he's not talking about things and events. In this context, he's talking about people. And God knew how men and women, boys and girls would respond to his initial act in wooing to bring them to himself. And based on that, as First Peter says, we are chosen how? According to the foreknowledge of God. And so God in eternity past knew how men and women, boys and girls would respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ and that's why he can write their name in the Lamb's Book of Life. God's omniscience In no way changes your free will. And so we saw that the word foreknow in all of its various forms in the New Testament does not speak of a divine act, but a divine attribute. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Now we saw again, the New Testament makes a distinction between the doctrine of election and the doctrine of predestination. Even the hyper-Calvinist makes that distinction, though commonly today it's bled together in the same way in most Christians' mind. We saw the doctrine of predestination is God's commitment once you are saved to make you more and more like Jesus Christ. Those whom He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. Why? That Jesus Christ might have first place, that He might be shown off, that He might be glorified above all else. Those whom He predestined he called and we saw in the Bible there are two usages of the verb to call there's the general call of God that God makes to all men and when he makes that call it is a legitimate call when he goes to the ends of the earth and he pleads for men to come to himself he's not calling them to something that he knows is absolutely impossible for some to achieve But the initiative begins with God, as we saw. You did not seek God. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. You had no capacity on your own to come to God. God awakened your dead heart. God revealed to you, either through creation, through conscience, or through the preaching of the gospel, your need to come to Christ. And when a man responds to that general call, he experiences the effectual, internal, irresistible call of God Almighty. And so in that sense, he can say those whom he foreknow, he predestined those whom he called, knowing in his prior knowledge how they would respond to the general call, he justified. And we spent a lot of time last week again on the doctrine of justification. It speaks of God not making us righteous, but declaring us righteous. It is a new position that we have. God doesn't just forgive your sin. If all God did was forgive your sin, you would die and go to hell. To go to heaven, you must be as righteous and as holy as God. And so God not only forgives us, he declares us righteous. He imputes the righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. And most of you, I hope, have the last two letters of that final word in those five links circled. In God's mind, it is already done. God has already glorified me. Just like God says, I'm already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. God says, I'm already glorified. Not experientially, I'm waiting for that day when Jesus will come back and complete my salvation. But in God's mind, positionally, I am already glorified. And so what I wanted us to see is between those whom God foreknew and those whom God glorified, uh, a past tense all the way through, there is absolutely no leakage whatsoever. And so God wants us to understand just how secure we are in Jesus Christ and all of the benefits that come with this package deal we call salvation. Peter Dynica born in present-day Belarus in uh, 1898 in 1914, got on a ship to come to the States. He made his way here through Nova Scotia. And uh, he he said in his biography, it was like I was on the other side of the world. And of course, he comes to America. Many of you know his name because he shows up at a place called Moody Church in Chicago. And it is there that he is converted to Jesus Christ and becomes the later founder of the Slavic Gospel Mission, a mission agency to this day that is committed to reaching the Slavics and the Russian people for Christ. But before God could greatly use him as an evangelist, he had to bring him to himself. And his family had a a dream for their son that life would be better for him, and so they saved and for, for a long time and finally bought his ticket to get on that ship. And his mother packed him up with brown bread and garlic so he would have food to eat on the long trip. And as he was on that boat, he, he would often look through the dining room and he would see these patrons who were wealthy and enjoying three luscious meals a day. About halfway through the voyage, some of the sailors noticed his plight And they said, listen, if you will do chores for us in the kitchen, you can eat back there with us. And he was delighted and he worked very hard and enjoyed the food that everyone else enjoyed. But the day before they arrived in Nova Scotia, he learned that actually all three meals were included in his ticket. Now, most of us today know that we have a ticket to have him. We know that it has been paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ. But many of us do not know the privileges that are attached to that ticket. And so not only are we to be saved by grace, we are commanded to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And those whom God has justified, he has indeed glorified. And yet there are so many today who are just insecure in the way they think about their salvation. They think that they might lose the ticket or that they might be thrown overboard, or that they might be put on a boat going in the opposite direction. But God wants you to know that there's an all-expense paid ticket, and there is so much, much more to come. Now, I would have thought that what Paul said in verses 28 to 30 would have been enough. He could have just stopped right there. But in the next 12 verses, he climbs to the highest peak there of this great mountain range. And he continues the thought even further, and he starts with a very challenging and important question. What then shall we say to these things? To what things? To the five links in God's golden chain of salvation. He's saying, listen, in light of these five affirmations that move us from eternity past into time and space into eternity future, what can we say? And so to answer his question, he asks five more questions that are really declarations of just how eternally secure we are. And if we are to understand the significance of these questions, we need to understand why He didn't answer these questions. He asks them, but in one sense He doesn't answer them because He wants us to see that there is an implied answer to each of them. That there are five uh, declarations that God Almighty makes through him that he wants you to leave with us. And so he begins with the first question here in verse 31 as an introduction. He asks, if God is for us, who is against us? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Now, you know in English that the word if most of the time suggests possibility. If you do this, then such and such will happen. It means perhaps or, or maybe, but not for sure. But if you've studied with us already in this 8th chapter, you know that the word if in Greek can be used of possibility, or there's a certain construction in the original that means absolute certainty. And that's the word that is used here. If God be for us, you could write over that word sense, or because God is for us, In fact, it speaks of a true and certain condition. And it's obvious when you read the Bible that that is most of the time what is implied. For instance, when the devil is out there in the wilderness tempting our Savior, he said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. When Satan says, if you are the Son of God, he's not questioning whether or not he's the Son of God. It is an assumed reality. And that's clear by the nature of the temptation. The devil would never tempt you to take some stones and turn them to bread because you couldn't do that. And so he assumes that he is the Son of God. And that's the thought here. We've already seen it used that way in verse 9. Notice, however, Paul says, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, and indeed He does. Look down in verse 11 in your Bible. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and He does, because that is true, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your immortal bodies. You say, well, why don't we just translate it sense? Why didn't God just say sense and use an entirely different word? Because there is a word like that in the New Testament because God wanted to emphasize the truth the way they pounded the pulpit the way they highlighted or underlined something in in red was to use a particular construction and God knew for all time that preachers would have to explain it and in our explaining it it would settle into your mind as to what God is saying God is for us i thought about that this week God is for Carl Rogie he's not against me Make it personal if you've received Christ as your savior. Do you remember when you were children and there would be two team captains and they had to pick a team from a group of children? And of course, you would always hope that you would be picked sooner rather than later. The worst thing was to be the last one to be picked. And most of the time, unless the guy was just compassionate, he would pick those who were the best. He wanted them on his team. And you became his. He was for you. Well, listen, when God picked you, when God chose you, when God called you, he didn't see anything in you that moved him to do that. All he saw was our filth and our rebellion and our dirtiness and our depravity and our ungodliness. But nonetheless, God chose us. And I will never forget that. And I will never get over that.
1: If God has sacrificed His own Son so that those who believe in Him will enjoy everlasting life, will He not sustain that salvation? We'll examine that and look at the answer next week when we continue our message, Part 1 of More Than Conquerors. If you'd like to hear both this message and Part 2 in their entirety, visit our website, searchthescriptures.org, and search for programs, More Than Conquerors. You can also listen on the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogi" app available from the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. Or just call us at 877-787-7478 to receive a CD or DVD copy. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our message entitled More Than Conquerors. Join us then... As we search the scriptures...